Business of Cambridge from Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome to episode 8 of Series 1, where we're back on Mill Road in Sue Keogh's office for a discussion about innovation. Hi, welcome to the Business of Cambridge, and on today's show, we're talking about a topic I've really been looking forward to exploring, which is how to innovate. And in Cambridge, there's lots of this going on right underneath our noses. What I'm interested in is the process. So how do you define that good idea in the first place? How you pursue it, how you cope with failure along the way, and how you make sure there's a good outcome. Welcome to the show, Caroline Clark. Now you're from Simprints and you're the technical product manager. Can you just sum up for me, just in a sentence or two, what it is that Simprints do? Yeah, Simprints is on a mission to transform the way that the world fights poverty. Um, We do this by ensuring that every vaccine, every public good, every dollar gets to its intended beneficiary. And we do this by using biometric technology to verify that the individual in front of us is who they say they are, the intended beneficiary. Wonderful. And I've also got one of your neighbours here from the Science Park, Dr Cassie Padbury, and your group lead on strategy, innovation and process at Cambridge Consultants. Just give me a little snapshot about some of the work that Cambridge Consultants does. Well, 2020 is our 60th anniversary, so with one of the sort of founding innovators in Cambridge, I guess we sum up what we do by diverse. We help our clients explore almost the seemingly impossible. We build them up to launch breakthrough technologies, products, services. My team in particular helps right from understanding what the future holds in terms of a rapidly changing technology landscape and how our clients can position themselves for future success within that. So some of the things I've got noted down here, I've got wine blending systems, I've got asthma inhalers, smart gas meters, surgical robots. So (laughs) it's quite a breadth, isn't it? very diverse. Um, It's always something exciting and innovative going on for our clients and our own internal investments. Caroline, just um, take me back to the beginning with Simprints. How did the whole idea start? It was four students completing their PhD. It was a spin-off from the University of Cambridge. Five years ago, they started a very, very small team, bootstrapping lots of different technologies together, looking at what was available in the market at the time. And the fingerprinting technology, it has been around for a while, um, but being used in this particular context, it was very different. So the environments that we work in, being across Africa and Asia, rural communities, it's very hot, very humid, very dusty. And so... They were really exploring how they could adapt technology that was available on the market for those particular contexts. The people that we work with, the beneficiaries, are often manual workers, so they have worn, missing or damaged fingerprints. And so that presents its own challenge in terms of how we capture a clean enough fingerprint that we can then subsequently identify that person when we go back to match it again. So you're helping people who don't have formal identification then to access healthcare and um, education, this sort of thing? That's exactly it, yeah. So in the countries where we work, they're quite often missing what we call the foundational ID. So that's things like 
passports or driving licenses. It's identification systems that are held quite centrally. So we provide what we call functional ID, which is for a very specific purpose, a project such as a deworming project that we have in Ethiopia or a maternal care project that we have in Bangladesh. For those very specific contexts, we can provide the ID so that we ensure the project is successful and reaches those it's intended for. And so Cassie, with Cambridge Consultants, you must have clients come into it to you with just such a wide range of ideas all the time. How do you actually narrow it down and say, yeah, this is a strong one, this is one that's going to be worth developing? Mm, often clients will come to my team in particular, a really early stage. They might have a particular technology that they've worked on and very academic. The R&D team are very passionate about it. They don't quite know where to position it in the market. Or they might have been following consumer trends and recognise the market opportunity, but want to know what technology to fill and capitalise on that opportunity with. And we start at any stage in that process from them not really having a defined strategy through to concept generation and hopefully take them on the full journey through to a launched product. So is there a set structure to that? In my world, which is more kind of creative industries, we might have a brief, a structure, a design brief, that kind of thing. Have you got similar processes that you follow to, just to knock that idea into shape? Interesting, because one of my other roles is actually to train internally on our product development process. And we've had to create quite a flexible process because our clients come to us with their own expectation about how the product development is going to work. We have to often integrate with their teams as part of the delivery. We cover such diverse industries from a wanted yesterday consumer product. So they have to be quite fast paced, agile, through to a very conservative industrial type client and the various stages and gates that we might have to jump through with them. So yes, we have a quite fluid and iterative process and we will spend quite a lot of time with the client discussing where the starting point actually is for that and to what extent they want to make use of our expertise, how far along the journey we go with them. Have you ever had to say to someone, look, this isn't going to work? Yes. <laughs> and Good. I was hoping you might tell me about this. <laughs> it's the reason that clients keep coming back to us, I think, because we become a trusted partner We'll tell them when their idea isn't going to work. If it's breaking the laws of physics or the market pool just isn't there, then we will say, I think, you know, let's reconsider this investment. Let's pivot. Let's stop this and explore what else we could do that will position them better. Caroline, just tell me a bit more about the early years with Simprints then. What, what was the first product that you developed, the first iteration of it? The very first thing that they did was select a range of commercially available image sensors and take them out into the field and conduct some side-by-side testing to determine the accuracy of those sensors. So once they had the results of that, they were able to select the sensor and then they went into further prototyping around how to embed the sensor within a handheld unit. So considering the ergonomics of the design, like how that feels in the hand, the weight of it, the width of it, the position of it, as you're trying to manoeuvre your thumb to activate different controls like how that affects the position within the hand and other considerations around the materials to be used within the product as well so all our products have to pass drop tests 
and various heat and humidity tests. In the early days, there are these anecdotes of people putting the scanners into ovens to check whether they could sustain the high temperatures. <laughs> you can take the units to official test centres where they've got the big industrial ovens and they do things properly. But if you're running on a budget and just trying to achieve the same results, there's lots of creative ways that you can do that. <laughs> And so, Cassie, with what Cambridge Consultants do, do you have a process that you follow with user testing? We learn as early as possible whether there's this right mix of technical feasibility, commercial viability and customer desirability. Doing early lab tests, they might be knocked up, as (laughs) Caroline was saying, using an oven or something, that where we can test out the most innovative aspect and check what's probably the most high risk in the product development as early as possible but also make sure we put it in the hands of somebody that's going to use it check that it's delivering the value that it needs to and hopefully the combination of those two with a market understanding means that it's a product that's going to be longer term successful. And what have you got actually built into your premises something like smart gas meters how do you test things like that well we're 850 strong globally but still mainly based in our cambridge headquarters and most of the ground floor of our many buildings or annexes there is dedicated to flexible lab space some of them tend to be wet labs but most of them are ones that can be reconfigured and our engineers will adapt them to the needs of whichever projects we're facing at that time and we'll use specialist test houses but mainly we'll be able to cover most things with our internal facilities. And so it's set up so people can experiment is it and sort of have a go at different ideas and explore? Exploring is exactly it yes we'll either on behalf of our clients or for our own internal projects, we have a very innovative environment where people will just come up with ideas and be like oh I wonder if that will work Asking those questions, having the facilities to just nip down to the workshop, knock something up, is exactly what we're all about. And what about in Simprints? How do you develop this culture of innovation, if you like, where people are free to explore ideas? We've all joined the company because we're really invested in making a positive difference. To Cassie's earlier point, when it comes to designing the product, the user has to be first and foremost in our minds. We involve everybody in that process, so the project delivery team gathering the feedback and helping us act as a sounding board really, like if we propose a solution, is that going to be feasible, is that going to be acceptable to people? Involving the engineers on the team as well from a technical feasibility point of view. Is that going to work? Is it going to cost an absolute bomb to make? Is it actually possible to build on what we've got already and kind of augment the features and the functionality we've got there so it's very much a participative conversation that we have to try and arrive at the optimal product feature combination. On the business of Cambridge today we're talking about innovation with Caroline Clark from Simprints and Dr Cassie Padbury from Cambridge Consultants and uh, I just want to sort of follow on from this and talk about this phrase that you hear a lot which is it's good to fail What happens when things go wrong? Do you perhaps encourage failure so that you can learn from it? How's all of that process managed? Mm, Failing fast is a commonly used term and early in innovation, doing all these testings, putting it in the hands of users is all a learning process. And if it comes to a point where you need to kill the project, then do that. Stakeholder engagement is very key at the start 
and a lot of senior managers, they get really interested when there's a sort of final prototype or even something's coming off the manufacturing line. And that is the point in time when they have the least influence and success. So it's that really early engagement, making sure that you've consulted manufacturing strategy, you've got a user advocate, you've understood the market, and you can make an early assessment about whether you should actually invest the quite substantial money that's needed to get a product out there. And how do you keep an eye on that budget? Because money has come up a couple of times in a conversation already. So, so how do you stop it spiralling out of control? Well, we personally have a quite structured process for our project managers to manage that budget on behalf of our clients. We have a contract with them to deliver something within an estimated time and budget and we will manage the risks and keep them informed as much as possible and make sure that it's a collaborative effort to keep the project on track. I'm interested in some of the challenges that you might have faced. So, for example, with data, if you're creating a lot of data for people who maybe didn't have it before, what are the risks there? How do you protect them from it, you know, tech for good being used for bad purposes? That's really interesting that you mentioned data, actually, because as a UK registered company, we have to comply with the General Data Protection Regulations, which is a piece of EU legislation, which at the moment is still in force. So that means that we have to have certain safeguards in place with regards to the collection, processing and storage of data because it's personally identifiable information. So once you've captured a fingerprint, that person's fingerprint will stay with them for life. And therefore, any breaches around data um, falling into the wrong hands could have quite serious repercussions. So... We have invested quite a lot as a company into what we call the back end. So that's the services that sit behind the scenes that support the storage and the processing of that data. In terms of the other challenges that we've faced, one of the biggest ones is around people within these communities not really understanding the technology. So our scanner pairs with a smartphone and is controlled via an Android app. And so there's quite a steep learning curve for people to get on board with that technology. One of the projects that we had, if there is a bad scan, then the lights on the scanner will turn red. And red has different associations, different meanings in other cultures. So here in the UK, we would expect that to mean stop what you're doing or something is wrong. It's a warning sign. But for them, they were interpreting it more in the context of their culture, which is its association with the devil. And therefore, it's something to reject. One of the things that we've done is change the LEDs so that they can be configured to be any colour. And therefore, if we encounter that resistance, we can change that in future. That's really interesting. And you're you're a very global company as well at Cambridge Consultants. So do you have similar challenges when you develop products and then they go out into the world and you realise there's there's issues that maybe hadn't been considered previously? I think we spend a lot of time upfront trying to avoid that. But when it comes to helping our clients globally think about the way they innovate, we certainly come up across a lot of uh, cultural differences that we have to take into account. So I've worked on innovation process improvements for the US, Europe, India, China, Japan. And um, going back to the point about failure, there's a real cultural difference about that early stage of innovation, how willing people are to accept almost personal blame for a project failing and getting used to a a culture whereby you see that actually more of a success that you find that out early and you can change the direction, giving them a self-belief 
and empowerment within possibly quite a hierarchical organization so that they can make decisions and no longer the senior management are bottlenecks. Those are the kind of challenges we get. Have you done a lot of work with Hitachi, is that right? So what sort of products were you developing with them? That's right. I've had a relationship with Hitachi for a number of years now. Fantastic company in terms of very passionate, smart people, loads of ideas. A great project we did with them was to establish what the future was going to look like when it came to things like symbiotic robots. So in Japan, they have a really open culture when it comes to working and living side by side with robots already. And we mapped out what the next 10, 15 years might look like in terms of robots being in the home and the workplace took that through to bringing it to life with a number of concepts that, for example, supported elderly care for dementia in the home, through to more social innovation type things to keep the streets safe, little robots that trundled around and um, recognised people and had contextual awareness to alert for safety issues. And then that, again, informed their R&D strategy to understand what they need to invest in now to make those future concepts come to life. And how important is it with innovation to make sure it's innovation for good rather than just developing products because it's, it's personally interesting? I think innovation can come in lots of different forms. We're creating our new product on our second generation scanner at Simprints that is going to help us progress and achieve our mission Beyond that, I think there is scope for people to innovate in lots of smaller ways. How we might approach the process of creation and building. We, we innovate on the processes that we use. Cassie mentioned Agile earlier. We use Agile within the team. It comes from a software background. Not sure if it really works for hardware development, which is on a much longer time frame. If you're trying to deliver things in two weekly cycles it can be a bit more of a challenge. So there the team are given scope to experiment and innovate and and make it work for them as well. So it indirectly contributes to our overall mission. And how about with you, Cassie? Would you say that you're putting ethics at the heart of what you're doing? You're trying to develop products that do good in the world? Absolutely. From our own company point of view, we're seeing that our engineers are more and more inspired to make a real impact, a difference in the world with the projects that they do. But also, whether it's big multinationals that we work with or our startups, we're seeing an increased awareness of sustainability issues. It's higher up the consumer agenda in terms of consumers understanding the footprint of their products that they're using but also there's a strategic imperative for governments and these large multinationals to make quite substantial investments in technology to really get us to the point where we can hit our zero carbon target so it's so high up our agenda that we have special interest groups internally coming up with our own ideas as well as actively pushing to clients to help them incorporate sustainability thinking into just their everyday product development. I think it's there now in a way that it maybe wasn't mentioned so much even 10 years ago. So is it something that you're bringing up more and more in conversations with clients then? We are. It was something that we recognised would probably be a trend a good number of years ago before the economic downturn meant that it did, to be honest, go lower on the agenda. We worked through innovation process to make sure that the environmental impact of 
potential design a product concept was considered early on and we could do a relative assessment of which ideas were the most sustainable to take forward. And what are those trends that are coming up in innovation that you see on the horizon? Well, we've got the emerging technologies, all the exciting things around artificial intelligence, um, synthetic biology, machine learning, quantum technology even. It's a real challenge for us as a business because we have to invest ahead of the curve in skills and capabilities so that when our clients recognize that this emerging tech is going to impact their business, we already have an expertise base to be able to advise them. So we have our own technology strategy internal team that's focused on what's coming next, what's, what are the big disruptors for business in terms of technology. I'd love to um, hear from you some ideas as well for people who might be listening who don't have so much of a budget and might be innovating on a much smaller scale. So what are those learnings, Caroline? Say if you did it all again you know what are those kind of essentials that you'd um, incorporate as part of the innovation process I think starting small is really key thinking back to what problem is it that you're trying to solve and then what's the very first smallest step that you can make that goes towards proving or disproving how you might solve that problem Undertaking what we're doing now, building a new scanner, it's a year-long investment of a whole team plus support plus the manufacturing side of it as well, all the supply chain that's involved in there. That's a huge undertaking and that's not where Simprint started. So Simprint started with just understanding what was out there in the market, whether there was a product and actually it's okay to use third-party products just to prove One, that it is a problem, and two, that there is a way of solving it and cobbling things together. So this product was used for this context, but we're going to try and change it slightly and see if it works for something else and learn from that. Like, what are the weaknesses in that? What are the strengths as well? And take those forward. So keep biting off smaller and smaller bits of work and working through a methodology, testing those before you go on to kind of the bigger things. And how about with you, Cassie? What are those um, learnings that you can share about the about the essentials that people should include in the innovation process? Mm, I think it, it comes back to that learning as quickly as possible. Spending the time researching and really being reflective on what the value is you're trying to create and then working on what those steps are that help you prove that value as early as possible. It's easy to get carried away with perhaps ticking off some of the easy tasks that aren't actually adding that much value or potentially getting you an IP portfolio upon which you could crowdsource or get more formal angel funding and things. So rather than just trying to get stuck in and and find something that show that you've got a product, it's really focusing on what is maybe the most innovative thing, de-risking the whole thing by addressing that as early as possible. It's probably the scariest step, but proving that value as early as possible is definitely a key on a small budget. So how do you decide, right, this thing is done, it's ready to go to market or to hand over or with Simprints, right, we're going to just get this product out there now, we're going to stop adding more features. So how do you decide, right, done, finished? It can be quite hard because you have engineers who are very passionate about it and maybe want to gold plate it and you can add in this whiz-bang thing and then you have to balance that with sort of commercial thinking around what's 
the minimum viable product that you want to launch and getting that out as early as possible and learning from that actually in the real world and informing maybe your next generation that way. You balance it between maybe you're being, there's commercial pressures, you want to be first to market with something, you're trying to hit the shelves by Christmas. There are various different factors that we have to take into account and that will be part of our very early understanding with the client about where they see the project going. And how about you, Caroline? Is it is it similar? I mean, how do you feel? So there's a new product coming to market. How do you feel just before it's going to launch? As Cassie was saying, unless we get that product into the hands of users, it's not creating value for anybody. So one of the other ambitions that we had with this was to redesign the strap because the adhesive is coming apart in the field. Like It only takes a little bit of dirt to get underneath it and the glue just will not sustain the temperature, the stress that it's put under. Um, we haven't managed to do that in the batch that is going to be going out in April, but we weren't going to hold off until we had that strap perfected because there's value to be released already from, say, the LED change. So we've spoken a lot about the global aspect of innovation, but of course, being here in Cambridge, there's so much happening right here under our noses. What's it like working in this kind of environment in Cambridge? We talked a bit about the challenges of the local infrastructure, such a historic city. Obviously, with things like emerging tech around autonomous vehicles and things, that's going to completely change the landscape of Cambridge. And of course, the people, the access to fantastic brains, the nice environment to live in. Really, I mean, I live out in the countryside, so I don't have to battle with the central Cambridge traffic. But Cambridge does hit above its weight in terms of attractive environments. Um, We are encouraging people to move out of London and set up innovative companies here. We ourselves as a company across our history have founded, spun out more than 20 successful companies that have mainly stayed in the area. So there must be something good about the Cambridge bus. And is it the same for you, um, Caroline, with Simprints? Um, Do you find it quite easy to recruit the right people to help you build this amazing product? Yeah, so I myself actually moved up to Cambridge in August last year. Previously, I was living in Kent. And for the reasons Cassie pointed out, kind of the ideas, the people, the general buzz around the city, it seems like a really exciting place to be. And that's definitely what lured me up here to Cambridge to relocate. For other people, we recruit internationally. So we do have two local offices, one in Bangladesh and one in Ethiopia. But we also have a number of people relocating to Cambridge from other countries around the world, whether that's Argentina or Ukraine or France. It's really multinational. And I think people are probably drawn for the same reasons. It's very exciting. There's a lot happening here in Cambridge. I love the mix of the history of the city and being a bit of a tourist when I first came here. I went around all the colleges and juxtapose that with the innovation and the technology companies that are setting up here to it it makes it kind of the place to be I think yeah it really is an exciting place to be running a business isn't it so thank you so much for coming on the show today Caroline Clark and Dr Cassie Padbury and join us next time for more stories from the business community in Cambridge next time on the business of Cambridge it's money 
The series is presented by Sue Keogh. It's a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. And you can hear this edition again or any episode from the series on Google, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, it's on the Cambridge 105 website.